life is full of uncertainty. The longer you live, the greater the chance that you're going to live through an historic event. One where the outcome is unclear and one that leaves you and all of your friends and all of the people in your life anxious and afraid. And let's be honest, this year, 2020, has had a handful of historic events in just one year. Prior to this year, I can recall four such events in my life. In March of 1981, there was the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. Reagan had been in office a mere 69 days. And then in October of 1987, Black Monday went down. And Black Monday was the day the stock market lost 25% of its value in a single day. 25% in one day. And then, of course, September 11th, 2001, the unthinkable happened. Americans were attacked on American soil and they used American planes to do it. And the fourth historic event that I've seen was the winter of 2008 into 2009, the beginning of what we now call the Great Recession. In those months, there was discussion and conversation as to whether or not the United States was entering a second Great Depression. The economy was in a free fall. The government seemed powerless to stop it. Of course, my grandparents would chuckle at some of the historic nature thing of those events. They lived through the actual Great Depression, where the question on any given day was, I wonder if we're going to eat today. They lived through World War II and all the horrors of it. Will the United States and the Allies prevail? Will Nazi Germany be defeated? Over the past several election cycles in the United States, we've had a huge dose of freakout. People think that the world is going to come to an end, grind to a halt if the wrong person or the wrong party is elected. And so, to borrow a phrase from my kindergarten teaching wife, everybody needs to catch a bubble. Everybody needs to take a chill pill. Let me make something absolutely clear. Salvation does not come from Air Force One. Part of the reason that everybody's freaking out during election seasons is that Folks talk about these elections in apocalyptic terms. We've got to elect. We've got to prevent. If this doesn't happen, it's the end. Friends, this is the most important election in our lifetime. Could you please stop saying that? Again, salvation does not come from Air Force One. God is our deliverer. Not the President of the United States, not Congress, and certainly not the good people in Frankfort, Kentucky. 
If you're looking to Washington or Frankfort, Kentucky to make your life better, to make the world better, you're looking to the wrong place. We're told in the Bible that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The psalmist says, I lift up mine eyes to the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help cometh from the Lord. Psalm 121. Listen, none of the stuff going on politically right now in the United States should be enough to rattle the church of Jesus Christ. None of it. Now, if we lived in Syria, the, the nation Syria that borders Jordan, and some of those places right now, rattled and ravaged by civil war and starvation and all this other stuff, then yeah, I could see how things seem really, really bad. But we don't live there. We live in Kentucky, in the United States. And so today, I want to share with you this, a story of God's deliverance. And it's a story I shared after the election in 2016 because so many people were freaking out and so many others rejoicing because they thought that the apocalypse was going to happen or that the apocalypse was averted simply because of who was going to become the next president of the United States. So today I want to share the story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the kings of Judah, and he had become king when he was just 25 years old. Hezekiah had witnessed the rebellion of his father Ahaz against the Lord and all of his father's pro-Assyrian policies. Hezekiah even witnessed firsthand the sacrifice of one of his brothers to a pagan god. Now that, that will mark you in life. And it did. And Hezekiah became like so many sons who say this of their fathers, I will not become my dad. Never, never, never. <laughs> and it would seem Hezekiah succeeded in his resolve. The Bible calls him a little David. Second Kings chapter 18 verses 3 and following says this. Hezekiah did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. Hezekiah removed the pagan shrines, smashed the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. The bronze serpent was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after his time. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything, and he carefully obeyed all the commands the Lord had given Moses. Hezekiah was faithful to the Lord. Hezekiah was trusting that God would be his deliverer. But Hezekiah had a problem. One of the world's preeminent superpowers of the day, the Assyrian Empire, had decided that they were going to invade all the way down to Egypt. And they were going to take over and conquer the Transjordan Highway and all the cities and governments and little kingdoms that dotted it along the way. 
One of those little kingdoms was the kingdom of Judah, the nation of Judah. Now the Assyrians, Assyrians, they were scary people. The Assyrian army was the first army to develop a boot for its soldiers so that they could engage in warfare year round, even during the rainy season. The Assyrian army was the first army to develop their own corps of engineers. They used ladders, ramps, siege engines, and they took these items with them when they laid siege to walled cities. One of the cities that the Assyrian king Sennacherib conquered was the Judean city of Lachish. And this took place in 701 BC. You can actually still see the Assyrian siege ramp that their Corps of Engineers built up to conquer that city. It's still visible today, 2,700 years later. Wow! Archaeologists actually recovered over 1,500 skulls in one site in and around Lachish. 1,500 Judean defenders who were fighting for King Hezekiah right there in and around the city of Lachish. Facing the Assyrian Empire was and is a lot like any small nation today facing off against the United States. What are you going to do? What are you going to do against that kind of shock and awe? Well, King Hezekiah tries to buy them off first. And that's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 14 and following. King Hezekiah sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I have done wrong. I will pay whatever tribute money you demand if you will only withdraw. The king of Assyria then demanded a settlement of more than 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold. To gather this amount, King Hezekiah used all the silver stored in the temple of the Lord and in the palace treasury. Hezekiah even stripped the gold from the doors of the Lord's temple and from the doorposts he had overlaid with gold. And he gave it all to the Assyrian king. The Assyrians, however, didn't play by the rules. And even though they obtained all of that silver and gold, they sent a portion of their army to Jerusalem anyway. And along with this Assyrian army was the Assyrian king's chief of staff who stood outside the walls of Jerusalem and shouted this up to the walls where King Hezekiah's officials had gathered. This is what the great king of Assyria says. What are you trusting in that makes you so confident? Do you think that mere words can substitute for military skill and strength? Who are you counting on that you've rebelled against me? On Egypt? (laughs) If you lean on Egypt, it will be like a reed that splinters beneath your weight and pierces your hand. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is completely unreliable. I tell you what, strike a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find that many men to ride on them. With your tiny army, how can you think of challenging even the weakest contingent of my master's troops. 
The guy, the Assyrian chief of staff, he's good. He's really good. In his speech up to the walls of Jerusalem, he lays out a series of truths and half-truths, propaganda and mockery, all designed to undermine the confidence of the Judean defenders. And by the way, the guy is speaking Hebrew, the native tongue of all the people on the wall. Well, the Judean officials working and serving King Hezekiah, they don't want this at all. And they say to him in verse 26, don't speak to us in Hebrew for the people on the wall will hear, speak to us in Aramaic for we understand it well. But the Assyrian commander, the Assyrian chief of staff, he continues on in Hebrew. Don't listen to Hezekiah when he tries to mislead you by saying the Lord will rescue us. Have the gods of any other nations ever saved their people from the king of Assyria? And what happened to, and then he lists the gods of all these nations that fell to the Assyrian army, including Samaria. And he says this, what God of any nation has ever been able to save its people from my power? So what makes you think the Lord can rescue Jerusalem from me? Well, the, the Assyrian commander leaves and the Judean officers report this exchange to King Hezekiah and King Hezekiah prays. He, he dons sackcloth and ashes and he goes into the temple and he summons the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah tells him that Sennacherib will return home and that God will kill him when he returns home and not to worry. Chapter 19, verse 19. Now, O Lord our God, rescue us from his power. Then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone are God. He's crying out to God. King Hezekiah is crying out to God and saying, rescue us. Why? So the world will know that you are God. Well, this is God's response to Hezekiah's prayer. This is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. His armies will not enter Jerusalem. They won't even shoot an arrow at it. They will not march outside its gates with their shields nor build banks of earth against its walls. The king will return to his own country by the same road he came. He'll not enter this city, says the Lord. For the honor and sake of my servant David, I will defend this city and protect it. And then we're told in verses 35 and following what happened. That night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. But King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and returned to his own land. He went home to the capital of Nineveh and stayed there. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramelech and Sharazer killed him with their swords. They then escaped to the land of Ararat, and another son, Esarhaddon, became the next king of Assyria. Was this a plague? What happened? Some of the Jewish rabbis say that mice chewed up the bows and weapons, and they had to leave. 
whatever happened, it's a miraculous deliverance. Could Hezekiah have done that? We all know the, we know from Assyrian history that Sennacherib was in fact killed by his sons. The irony is that Hezekiah goes into the temple of his God to pray for deliverance, but Sennacherib goes into the temple of his God to pray and is killed. God, the God of Hezekiah, the God of David, is a God who delivers. Psalm 46 puts it this way, we will not fear, though the mountains crumble into the sea, we will not fear. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 is referring to the temple and he says, this building here, gone, rubble baby, but don't panic. And Jesus is talking about some significant things. So let me ask a question. Have you ever been in a situation like Hezekiah where, there, where your enemy is at the gate and there isn't a solution? There's nothing that you can see that looks like deliverance. What did you learn? What did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about God? Again, salvation does not come from Air Force One. Any more than Hezekiah could get salvation from the Egyptian army. Our problem, our problem today is that we're wanting to trust God and political power. We're wanting to trust God and have the Supreme Court stacked with people who think the way we think and vote the way we would want to vote. We're wanting to trust God and have Congress and the White House have our guy, our gal in there with our agenda. Gang, God wants you and me to trust him for not just our salvation, but for everything. So in light of where the United States is these days, in light of the fact that our social media feeds are jam-packed with people making apocalyptic predictions, if Trump wins or Trump loses or Biden wins or Biden loses, I want to suggest a few things. The first is addressed primarily to young people. And to young people, I want to say, I am so sorry. We are definitely not leaving the United States better than we found it. We're using highly charged rhetoric that isn't helpful or accurate. As far as I can tell, this isn't the end of the world. And even if it were, we don't have reason to panic because God has a plan. So young people, I'm sorry. The second thing I would want to say in light of this is that you may need a media blackout. A media blackout of Fox and CNN and everything else that's causing you to be fearful and anxious and, and ratcheted up just like the people along the wall of Jerusalem probably were listening to the Assyrian chief of staff give his speech, which was full of truths, yes, but half-truths. You may also need a social media blackout where you're not seeing the comments and posts 
of even people you know personally because a lot of what's being posted right now isn't, hey, I'm for this candidate and here's why I support this candidate. Most of what's being posted now is this other person, the candidate I don't want to win, they're horrible and here's why. And people who vote for them or support them are also evil and, and stupid and ignorant and, and it, it just, so you may need a social media blackout or a media blackout. The third thing I would suggest in light of this is read the Bible. Listen to the Bible. Study the, the Bible. Obey the Bible. God still speaks in and through his word. God still speaks in and through his word. And lastly, you may need to get out of your bubble and echo chamber and start listening to people who think differently from you. Now, these kind of conversations are hard to have in the middle of a pandemic, but when the pandemic is over, I'm gonna suggest in person, over coffee, at lunch, in person, because it's very difficult to have the kind of delicate, controversial, emotionally laden, politically charged conversations that are happening on social media to take place in a way that is cloaked with the kindness that happens when someone's literally looking you square in the eyes. President Bill Clinton in the 1990s famously once said, Everybody who's bet against the United States over the course of history has lost that bet. What I would say to you, team generations, is that everybody who has bet against the kingdom of God since John the Baptist announced its arrival has lost that bet. God's kingdom is unstoppable, unshakable. It is better than any mirage kingdom of the world it is a place of shalom it is a place and sphere of justice it is the way things ought to be in this world and so again salvation does not come from air force one it never has it certainly isn't this election cycle and it won't in the future because if I read my Bible right at the end of history, Jesus comes back on a horse with a sword sticking out of his mouth, not from Air Force One.